We're in the 14th chapter of Romans. Got down to about the 17th verse. Not not to review too much, but I'm sure we all remember we were looking at and thinking about this uh, works of the law and Gentiles being brought in and some of them would eat all things and consider it clean in Christ Jesus. And certainly that's that's the teaching of the New Testament. But others, for conscience sake, they couldn't take part in that because it would bring condemnation on them. And so you had the strife between the weak and the strong. And that, that could cause division and schism in the body. And So Paul's saying the weak ought to be received just like anybody else in the family of God. And the weak should not, uh, should not be judging or condemning the strong. But recognizing this, that, and that's what we have here in this chapter. These people are doing the best that they know how to serve and honor the God that delivered them from sin and brought them into His family. This is not a corruption of doctrine like you see in Galatians. This is not Judaizers. But these are folks that are thankful unto God that He saved them through Jesus Christ and they're doing the best that they know to serve the Lord and to glorify Him. And so we, we come down now to verse 17, and we started this verse and didn't finish it last time. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. I didn't write down any of this, but I'm going to try by memory to look at, think about what we've covered here. Why should the... Why should the weak and the strong come together? Well, they've got one Savior that they're righteous in. They're both accountable to one Master, the Lord Jesus. They are accountable to Him and and they appear before His judgment seat. God is presiding over their lives day by day. Not, Not just something out at the end. If you make it about the end, then what today, that the weight of that's off of me. So it's a judgment seat that we stand before day by day. Christ is overseeing His flock, leading, guiding, and directing them. And so we come down here, and this this is the sum of the argument, really. It doesn't matter. The kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not hung up in little ceremonies or motions of religion that man so much puts their trust and their hope in and in what little things that they've done and even as you might transfer this today a baptism now I believe that when somebody is born again it's commanded by the word of God and the Holy Ghost will lead for them to want to be baptized and join the church I believe that's the natural by the way God set it up that's the natural course of things but with that as well You can have that baptism and still not be saved, not be regenerated. It's not that that we put our hope and trust in. It's not uh, any work or ceremony. It's not a joining of the church. It's not the right hand of fellowship that's brought in. It's not that we do these little works. That's not what the kingdom of God really is. Jesus said the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there, for the kingdom of God 
is within you. This is a work that God does in the hidden man of the heart. That regeneration, that resurrection, and a new creature made. And the Holy Ghost, Christ Jesus, in you, the hope of glory. That's the kingdom of God. And so the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. And we read some of these scriptures. We won't go through them again. Uh, But in 1 Corinthians 8 and 8, But meat commendeth us not to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. It doesn't matter whether you, you take part or not. It does not make any difference before God for you. And so you see, the kingdom of God then is, it's not about little works of the flesh. People are hung up on works of the flesh and religious ceremonies and rites and theirs were trust is. But what Paul's saying here is the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. So what is the kingdom of God. We started last time, righteousness. Righteousness is imputed, not earned. Remember in Romans 4, uh, earlier in the book, he talked about Abraham. And this is what he said, If Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. If Abraham's work played any part in resulting in his justification, then Abraham can say, I did this in order to be justified. This was the work that I did that resulted in my justification. Now, right there, right there, salvation is turned into the works of man. Though not obvious, not like the Catholics would teach, but now you think, if if I preach a gospel that says... Now, the grace of God's going to come to you and then you've got to choose and you've got to do and you've got to act before you can be saved. There, the whole work then is hinged on you. It's on what you've done. Well, I went to the altar and I prayed and I done and that resulted in my redemption. That can't be right. Abraham's justification was not based on a work that he did. If it did, then Abraham had something that he could glory in. Abraham could say, I did that. I brought that to pass. And you could look at your neighbor. Here's here's the biggest problem with that doctrine. You've got a man that believes and a man that don't. You can look at that man and say, you're dumber You're more wicked. You're more foolish than I am because I did the right thing and you didn't. And you've got something to boast in. But what saith the Scripture? So in Romans chapter 4, Paul's going to take us back to what the Old Testament says. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. So how did Abraham believe God? How can you believe? Remember Romans chapter 10? Can you believe in Him in whom you've not heard? 
There's no way you can believe in something you've never heard about. In order to be a believer, you're going to have to know what you're believing. See, it's, it's impossible to believe in something you've never heard. So Abraham had to hear, didn't he? And remember, Romans 10, it's all in this book. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. How did Abraham believe? God's Word spoke to Abraham. Now, was that enough? Some people would say that's enough. But God's Word alone was not enough for me to believe. Neither was it of you. But there was that regenerating, quickening work of the Holy Spirit that the, the truth absolutely convinced me of my condition and of Jesus' ability to save me. I knew beyond any shadow of a doubt that I was wicked and on my way towards the judgment and the wrath of God that we've already heard about. I knew that. He convinced me of that. No questioning. And I was afraid and trembled at that fact. And as the Holy Ghost showed me the Lord Jesus, I didn't say, well, I don't know whether He can save me or not. He convinced me of the fact that He was able to deliver me from that and was the only hope that I had. So the Holy Ghost convinces and draws. So why did I come then? Because God convinced me of that. So see, the hinge now is not on what I do. I did because God did. And that's what Abraham did as well. It was counted unto him for righteousness. Abraham had no righteousness. Could you say believing would be a work of righteousness? If it's something I did, then it's something I earned. But Abraham believed and it was counted. God imputed. God. The word means to estimate. Estimate or to take an inventory. That's the word for imputed. Over and over again you see that word in the New Testament. So God, as He looked on Abraham's account, God counted righteousness to be there when there was none. It was given from another source. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. I think that's common sense. If something I do results in my salvation, then that's not grace that brought it to me. It's impossible that I do something to get it and then call it grace. It's I did this and God owed it to me because I did, God owed it to me to do. It's of debt. Think about how foolish that sounds. And yet this doctrine has been promoted in our, in our land and neck of the woods for years and years and years and accepted as the truth. But it can't be the truth. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Who's he justifying? Not repentant people. It doesn't say that he justifies the, the sorry or the repentant. It doesn't say that he justifies the religious people. 
It doesn't say that He justifies moral people. It doesn't say that He's justifying seekers of God. But He is justifying people in their ungodly state. Ungodly, that word, I guess sometimes we, keep, we don't think of a definition, but it's, it's pretty simple. Ungodly. Not like God. Rebellious and hateful and odious towards God. And it's those people that God is appearing to, convincing and drawing to Himself. And there's no glory in the flesh. So the kingdom of God then is righteousness that's given, not earned, not done. There's not one person in the kingdom of God that can say, I'm righteous because I did X, Y, Z. But the kingdom of God is righteousness in the Holy Ghost. And peace. Now what kind of peace do we need? The world just wants free from anxiety. That's what they think about peace. We, but really the, the peace that we're talking about here is a peace between me and God. I, I believe what Dad said. Wrath is coming. It's sure. God is loving. He is merciful. He is forgiving. But God is just. Justice must be served. And when God comes to bring justice, you can be guaranteed that there will be no innocent person perish with the ungodly. Now, that might bring comfort to the blinded mind, but by the same Word of God, there's no one. There's no one that's innocent. There's no one to be innocent. Now, what's it mean to be innocent? Not having broken the law. So you, you just you don't even have to think much, really. You just take those Ten Commandments and you begin to think about what they say. And you know, you know that there's no person on the earth that has lived any amount of time and not broken one of those commandments. All are guilty. So in God's justice then, this wrath is due unto everybody. We're against God, and God's against us, and we're not going to win. Though hand join in hand, though they say a confederacy, and we'll rise together and withstand God, God's consuming fire will come and sweep everyone away. So what do we need? We need a means of peace between me and God. I don't want to be under His wrath and anger. I want to be at peace with Him. I want to know that the problem that we had is fixed. And He's not angry with me anymore. So how does man get that peace? Well, it's peace in the Holy Ghost. And it was purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 5, again earlier, same book. Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through 
our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So our peace with God is through. That word means the channel of an act. It's like the pipe that runs from the well to the water fountain. The pipe is the channel that the water goes from one place to another. So the peace with God is able to reach us through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you take the pipe away, you're not going to drink any water at the fountain. If you take the Lord away, there's no peace for you and I. So it hinges on the Lord. Why does it have to hinge on the Lord? It's the same reason, the justice of God. God cannot acquit the wicked. God can't say, it's alright, I'm going to let you slide and I'm just going to ignore the sin sweeping under the rug as we might say in our language today. We can't ignore that. God's just and righteous and every sin and transgression must receive a just recompense of reward. So then in order for me to have peace with God and no longer abide under His wrath, every sin that I have and have committed in the past and will commit the rest of my days, there must be a means for that to be paid for. And the Lord Jesus is that means. God providing His Son and it was on the back of the Lord Jesus Christ, that God put our sin, God put our transgressions and our guilt. And you see, in in the mind of God, I haven't been beaten for my sin. I haven't received the punishment for my sin. But God who sees all things at all times in a way that's beyond my thinking, there I was, I was under His wrath, and that's what I was going to receive. But as they striped the back of the Lord with a whip, every stripe He received, one on my back, was healed. As the Lord Jesus died, we were able to live. And so God provided peace for us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. If there's no propitiation... If there's not one that's going to atone for the wrath of God, then there can be no peace. God cannot ignore sin. And the Lord Jesus bore our sin, bore our guilt, bore our punishment in His body that we could have peace with God. So righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So joy, rejoicing, to be calmly happy, to be well off. Now to be happy as the world thinks of joy, this is not that kind of joy. Because today, this is the truth, today could be the happiest day of my life. That I receive the best that I've ever received and I've never been so happy in all of my life. And tomorrow be the lowest day of my life. How quickly that happiness can be taken if it's in the world. 
so uncertain, so unsure. That's not the joy that the Lord talks about in the Word of God. But here is a rejoicing, not in me, not in the body of the church, not in, uh, not in mom and dad, or not in my works, but a joy that's in the Holy Ghost of God. Why are the people of God joyous? Because Christ has taken their place. And as Leah said this morning, it's eternal. And it can't be taken away. And we can't be robbed of that. But we have assurance today that when this life is over, no matter what this life looks like, if this life goes in the ditch and it stays there for the rest of our days, we've got assurance of a better day yet to come. And the church can rejoice. These men could rejoice in Paul looking at the gallows where they're going to cut his head off. He could say, I'm ready to be offered because I've got a better day coming. His body had been beaten. He had been tortured. He had been abused. He had been imprisoned. No telling what a day in Paul's life was like. The aches and the pains and the sorrows and even the hatred of all of the people of the land, save for a few that were redeemed. Paul said, I'm ready to go because it's going to be better for me over there. And so the church in Philippians chapter 3, we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now there's something to rejoice in. I've got a salvation that has no bearing on me. But this is sure, steadfast, and unchangeable, anchored in that which is behind the veil, anchored in Christ Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that's already taken place. That can't be undone. And so a sure salvation. So God then has provided all of these for the church. Righteousness, peace, and joy. All of that's gifts to us that come through the Lord Jesus Christ. Outside of Christ, we've got nothing. Outside of Christ, we have no righteousness whatsoever. Not even a toenail's breadth of righteousness. Without Christ, we've got no peace with God. But we're under His abiding wrath and all we've got to look forward to is judgment and punishment with no reprieve. Outside of Christ, we've got nothing to rejoice about. When the day of death comes, all there is is gloom and fear and dread because we know that when we leave this world, it's before a holy and an angry God that we'll stand before and we're going to stand accountable for everything we've ever done. And you know, maybe this is cliche, but you don't want us here to know everything you've done. I, I don't want you to know everything I've done, everything I've said, every thought I've thought. And yet, we're not going to stand before the church. We're going to stand before this angry God. So outside of Christ, we're, 
we're beggars. In Christ, we've been gifted all of these things in the Holy Ghost. Now we can make it, it can be made up. Religion is made up. Religion is acted. Religion is put on. But this comes through Jesus by the Spirit. Now the pipe that goes from the well to the fountain carries that water. But it don't flow by itself. It's not jumping out of the ground and flowing to us. But there's, there's some pressure out here that's produced by a pump that brings it up and brings it to here. So the Lord Jesus is still necessary and important, but without the Spirit, that ain't doing me any good. So you've, you've got to have them all together. God the Father is sending us these blessings, these virtues, through the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. And he says earlier in Romans, if any man have not the Spirit, he's none of his. If the Holy Ghost is not indwelling the life of that individual, the Holy Ghost has not made a new creature out of them and is not actively daily walking with them and causing them to follow after Christ, then they don't have any of these. Any hope, any righteousness, any joy, any peace is imagined. Do you think that happens? The Lord says, I believe it's in Luke where He says it like this. It may be Matthew. Then shall He take away even that which He seemeth to have. So He don't have it. Really, He doesn't have it. But the, it seems that way. And the Lord's going to take it. So what's He talking about? Well, we're talking about righteousness, peace, and joy. People think they're righteous. People think they've been saved. People think they're alright. They think they're going to abide the wrath of God and the judgment. They think that they've been saved, but they think it without the Spirit. And which He thinketh, which He seemeth, to think or regard with no proof or evidence. So what's the proof or evidence that we indeed have this blessings from God through Jesus? It's in the Holy Ghost. So he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Now it's important to recognize this now. Jesus isn't making me wise. He's not making me righteous per se. That I can say I am righteous. Or that I could say I am wise. But Christ is made unto me. I'm wise in Christ only. I'm righteous in Christ only. He didn't make me a standalone. But Christ has made these unto us. That as it's written, if there's any glory, let him that glorieth glory in the Lord. 
I've, I've got absolutely nothing that I can claim for myself. Do you see that? By the Scripture, all the glory is to the Lord that done all of the work. And so in Galatians chapter 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. So this is the fruit, not fruits. This is the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, I believe you can see the picture. If we had an apple tree out here, we used to have an apple tree out here. And the fruit of the apple tree, it naturally produced... Apples. That was the product of an apple tree. And so what's the product of the Spirit? The Spirit is producing love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. See, this is, this is that that comes from the Holy Spirit that's planted inside of the life. This is not a, well, you make a profession and then you do it all, and it's to your credit what you attain. But God's working in the lives of them that are saved. And the Spirit is producing out of their life all of these virtues. It's the regenerate... Well, I'm not able to do that. I'm not able to live like that. I'm not able to act that way. Man's not able... It's by the Spirit. It's by regeneration. What's wrong? Honest to God, what's wrong? 99.999% of the time is people are unregenerate. They are not saved. The Spirit is not in them to produce these works. Because if, if the Spirit abides in you, if the apple tree is planted out here, that'll produce apples. And if the Spirit is planted within, He will produce these works. In Romans chapter 8, again, same book, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. In Ephesians, He's given us the earnest of the Spirit. So what is the Spirit? He is the means that we receive all of these things through Christ from God. He is the evidence that we belong to God in Jesus Christ. He's our companion through all things in this life. And He is that that transforms us and brings forth fruit out of us. That's like unto the Son of God. So... Really, we could say that in the kingdom of God, if there's any good thing about any of us, and if, if we're saved, there are good things about us. But all of that came from God through the Spirit. So that any gift that we have, any ability that we have, anything that we have, 
It came directly from God so that let him that glorieth, not glory in how much I study and pray and made myself this way. That may work as a mathematician, but in the kingdom of God it's not like that. It's righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Ghost. Not religion, but in the Spirit. Religion is a form with no power thereof. The kingdom of God is the indwelling Holy Ghost of God making new men and new women in Jesus Christ. So verse 18, For he that in these things serveth Christ is acceptable to God and approved of men. So serveth. What's it mean to serve Christ? To come to church on Sunday, that's serving Christ. The word means to be a a slave to a, a bondman so that we are his property. Now the slave, did the slave ever go back home? Did the slave ever have a day off or a week's vacation? No, the, the slave belonged to the master. And that's the way we are to Christ. We are his slave. And he that in these things. So notice, it's not in the things of the flesh. It's not in meat and drink that we serve God and it's acceptable to Him. That word acceptable means to be fully agreeable. It's God approving of it. God stamping it with approval. It's not in meat and drink that God is served and that He approves. It's not in the works of my hands that I serve God and God approves of it. It's not anything that I can take credit for that God is served and that I can glory in in the least. But it's in these three virtues, this righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. So he says in John chapter 4, We all know this scripture. God is a spirit. And they that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. But if I do this in the flesh, that's got to produce some kind of worship to God. If I could sing pretty enough, surely that would worship God and God would be pleased with that. If I could just be moral enough of myself, then surely God would approve of that. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with any of that. The church ought to live moral. But when that's what I'm trusting in to worship God, my trust is in the wrong place. How can I worship God the same way God brought me these blessings? The same means through Jesus, by the Spirit, the blessings come to the water fountain. Well, if I'm going to offer anything back to God, it's going through the same Jesus and it's going to be by the same Holy Spirit. It's going to be that that God produces. That that God brings out of me. And that is the only worship that is acceptable unto God. 
1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, Wherefore I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. I think the first part of this verse there, that's common sense. He's not said anything deep or profound there, but he's setting the stage for what he's going to say. So he says, we know this, that the Holy Ghost is not going to cause anybody to say that Jesus was anathema, accursed, despised of God. Do you believe that? Do you think the Holy Ghost is going to inspire somebody to mock the Lord Jesus? It can't be. That's that's absolutely impossible for that to be. Well, listen to the last half of that verse. And that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Well, now I can say it. You sure can. We could go to the mall and we could talk a lot of people into saying it with a mouth and with words. And there's going to be, as the Lord says in Matthew 11, I believe, maybe it's Matthew 7, many shall say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord. And Jesus says, I believe in Matthew again, another chapter, why call you me Lord and do not the things that I say? So see, you can say it with your lips, but what God's saying is, that nobody can really, truly say that Jesus is my Lord except the Holy Ghost be in them and inspire that to be said. Everything else is vain words and a vain testimony that is untrue. So the Spirit's not going to have anybody curse Jesus well then, no one can say Jesus is Lord except the Spirit. So you see, even, even the words of my mouth are worthless outside of the work of Christ and the moving and stirring of the Spirit of God. See, we, we can't do it on our own. It's not to our glory. He that in these things serves Christ is acceptable to God. What's God going to accept? That that's offered through Jesus by the Spirit and approved of men. Now, you say, well, what's it matter whether man approves or not? Well, in, in one sense, it doesn't matter. As it stands right now, there's a pile that would disapprove of what I teach. Now, in reality, that doesn't matter if what I'm teaching is the Word of God. But what he's saying here, let's look a little deeper into the context of the Scripture and let's see exactly what he's saying. You've got this division. You've got strong people that are setting aside weak people and saying they're silly, they're foolish, they're weak. We really don't need their input. And you've got weak people that are saying, these people are living to the lusts of their flesh and they're wicked and ungodly. And we don't need them here either. 
there's that division there. You know what that division is caused by? Fleshly things. Carnality. What I am and what I do, they're wrapped up in meat and drink. They're wrapped up in traditions and ceremonies and the things of the flesh. And it's causing division. But if the church would come together now in the Spirit and that be what everyone would desire, that we're going to serve God in the Spirit, in the righteousness that He provided, in the peace that He's given us, and in the joy of the assurance of our salvation, that's not going to tear anybody else down, is it? That's not going to make me look down on you because I got it the same way that Rex got it, the same way that Daniel got it, and in Christ we're all the same. It's not going to tear down or cause division, but it'll bring together. Approved of God. Now this is what he says. Acceptable to God and approved of men. I tell you what, you get up and you start honoring God in the Spirit. And God bear witness and He's pleased with the sacrifice of your lips through Jesus and by the Spirit only. I tell you what I can do. I can say amen. And I can enjoy the fruit of that. And I can be drawn together with you in that. That's something how that happens, ain't it? Somebody stands up in the Spirit of God, the real Spirit of God, how that it draws the church to that in love and in desire. Now the put on, that will put you under the bench. But the real thing will bring together. And so here, to serve God in the Spirit, that's acceptable. God will fully approve of that, fully agree with that and approved of men, men will be brought near to that and enjoy that instead of being cut down, ostracized, or set out of the way. And so that's the means that God has given us to serve Him. We're not harming the conscience of anybody. We're not harming the conscience of the weak. Nor are we condemning the strong because we recognize that everything comes through Jesus Christ and that the most wicked and evil and mean person in the world could be elect of God, come through the back door, God save them and they would be equal with every one of us in Christ. In Christ they would be just as righteous as anybody else would be. So to set aside the disesteem to serve God in the Spirit. So let us therefore, verse 19, let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify one another. This edification, we'll look at that a little deeper in 15. So we're, gonna, we're not going to quickly go over it here, but we'll look at it deeper later. But he says, let us follow after That word follow after, it means to pursue. It's an escaped convict and the police are pursuing after them. They're making great effort 
to catch that. So what ought the church to do? We ought to pursue after these things. Make great effort to have and to do these things which make for peace and may edify one another. In Matthew chapter 5, verse number 9, the Sermon on the Mount, these first 10, 11 verses, the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 9 he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God, those that are seeking after peace. They're the children of God. We got a peace that we didn't deserve. We got a peace not that we earned, but that God gave us through the death of His Son and He brought to us in 2020, in 2000, whatever year that it was you were saved, God delivered His Son to you afresh by the Spirit. You didn't deserve it. And you want to see everybody else have the same peace. Peacemakers seeking after that. In Ephesians 4, endeavoring. Now you think in Romans he says to pursue. In Ephesians 4 verse 3 he says endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So endeavoring, here's an effort being made. This is not something we lay back and stand aside and say, well, if it, if it happens, let it happen. And if not, let it not. But we're to pursue after and we're to endeavor that the unity of the Spirit remain in the church of the living God. Now you think about what a shame that it is that the Holy Ghost give a testimony to one of my brethren. And because the unity between the brethren is cut, I don't even want to hear what the Spirit's got to say. Ain't ain't that a shame? That's a shame. But that happens. And if there's not an effort made endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, what bonds it together? It's the glue that holds it together. It's the peace of God. We've got peace between myself and God through Jesus. And if I've got peace and you've got peace, we want to be peacemakers. We want to see others receive the peace that we have. Then we endeavor that in the church there be unity in the Spirit of God that God would approve of something and I would disapprove of it because of what I think about you. I'd be ashamed. So he says in Colossians chapter 3, verse number 12, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing, one another and forgiving one another if any man have a quarrel against any even as Christ forgave you so also do ye so we're we're putting on the Lord Jesus here you see we're and and we're going to get to that in Romans 14 
we're becoming more like Him. We're doing more like He done for us. It's not God asking us to do something that's uh, out of the way. But as the elect of God, being chosen by God, undeserving, unearned, unwarranted, God made you holy and beloved because He saw fit to do so. You don't deserve to be here. You've never done anything of yourself that earned you a place in the family of God. That ought to humble me. We're only what we are in Jesus by the Spirit. You take either one of those out of the mix and you're hopeless. You'll never come to God. You'll never be any different. You're going to face the wrath of God at the end of the way and never know you're going there until you get there. So, if that's the case, then Lord have mercy. We ought to put on bowels of mercies from the deepest point. Remember that? We talked about that. The intestines. We would say, I love you with all my heart. What we're saying is we love you from the deepest inner point of our body. That's the way the church ought to love one another. Bowels of mercies. Kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another. That means, so the picture is this, to stand oneself up against. That's the definition. And so what it is, is here's a man that's he's crippled, he's broke his leg, and I'm going to put myself up against him to hold him up. So that's one, that's one picture of it. And on the other side of it is to put up with. If I'm going to carry somebody that's broke their leg, I'm going to have to bear some of that weight on me so that they can move. You see how that works? Well, if I'm going to put up with somebody, I'm going to have to bear some of that on me. I'm going to have to be willing to put up with it, whether I like it or not. You know, the Lord Lord put up with the cross on His back. The Lord put up with the mocking and the spitting and the slapping and the crown of thorns and the crucifixion and them saying, you, if you're really God, just come down and prove it. He put up with all that that we could have life. God says now, forbear one another and forgive one another. What are, what's going on here? The endeavoring of the unity of the Spirit. The pursuing after the things which make for peace and wherewith one may edify. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. So we're seeking after peace between everybody in the family and edification. That's a, it's architecture. It's a building up. We're not trying to tear anybody down. The weak shouldn't try to tear the strong down. And the strong shouldn't try to tear the weak down. But you know, if, if you're a house, and this is a picture, a parable. If you're a house that you've got the foundation laid, then we ought to start laying the wall, the block wall that we're going to build on. 
if you've got rafters on your house, if you've come to the point that the rafters is up, then we need to sheet that and get a roof on it. If the outside is finished and dried in, we need to get in and begin to finish. But here's the bottom line. Wherever you're at, your house isn't finished. This is to go on till we come in the fullness of the stature of the Lord Jesus Christ. None of us has arrived. Some may be at the foundation wall. Some may be putting a roof on. Some may be finishing the inside. But nobody's done yet. What ought the church seek to do? Build up every one of them. That tomorrow you're a little farther along than you were today. I'm here to help you build. You're here to help me build. That we build on the truth. We build on the Word of God. We seek after the edification, the building up of one another. One more place and we'll stop. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. How is it, brethren, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. So what's God gave? He's gave one man a song to sing by the inspiration of the Spirit. To another He's give a doctrine. He's give a verse and some understanding about what that verse means. To another He's given a tongue. He's given him something to say, a, a testimony for the glory of God. To another a revelation. God's give these things to different people in the church. Why did He do that? so that I can say, look how smart I am. Look what I've done this week. I've earned that God would give me this. It's not about me. But God gives these things. Let all things be done unto edification. I'm going to share my testimony that it might help you down the road. God's going to give me a verse. He's going to give me a song that it might help somebody in the church. That's our desire. The church's desire ought to be, let us help somebody else. Let us build them up a little stronger today than they were yesterday. So think about the picture now. Instead of quarreling in the church here at Rome, seek after peace and the edification of the believer. Seek after the good of all men the church will be stronger. If your wall goes up a little higher and this other fellow's wall, uh, building gets a roof on it, and if we start to finish the kitchen in another man's, and don't get hung up on the picture, I think you can see what we're saying. Christians at different points of maturity and of strength in the parable of building a house. But if we all get one block further, then the church is that much stronger in each and every one. And that ought to be the desire of them that are in Christ. That's all that's on our heart. We'll pick up there next time. Anybody got anything you'd like to say?